0: My next guest is a veteran of the IT and software industry, having been around this sector since the early 1980s. Now, over this time, Andy has also created eight different businesses and these days spends his time helping clients understand and capture the value of their data. Now, most people these days recognize that data has value, but in a world where terms like big data are thrown around a lot, I think there's a big disconnect for most small to medium enterprises on how they can actually turn their data into a valuable asset. Andy and I explore the concept of data integrity and how this can improve efficiencies and profitability, but also how it can improve the value of your company if you ever want to sell. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. This is Andy Kyatt.
1: G'day, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Simon. Pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for making the time. You know, I, I will say for our guests, you know, we obviously we've heard the intro, but you know, full disclosure here, you know, Andy, you and I have known each other now for what four years or something like that, maybe longer. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, Andy was uh, uh, and I both appeared uh, in the Fifty Unsung Business Hero book, which was uh, which was a great experience, and um, and thank you to Charles Fairley from Purpose Publishing for that. Yeah, Andy, I, I you are the classic serial entrepreneur. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and and so I'm so excited to to share your story today because I think there's so many different little kind of lessons to be learned and and of course at the end of all this I'm going to ask you your top tip for entrepreneurs when we get to the end but uh, but mate would you like to kick off and just give give the listeners a bit of an overview of your background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, interesting. You mentioned serial entrepreneur. I once weakened and uh, went for a job, and somebody reviewed what I'd done and said I. Uh, oh I see you're a serial entrepreneur and I said yeah yeah do, do you consider that a good thing or not he didn't answer the question so I guess he didn't and I didn't get the job and I'm quite relieved but uh yeah uh, so I think we're all in that unemployable category now <laughs> absolutely I used to joke I'm unemployable but I kind of realise, yeah I, I am and I've been paddling my own canoe for for many many years currently on businesses seven and eight and uh yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Now, I'll just give you a bit of a background because I, I guess I, in terms of, of the conventional employee role, I've probably only been an employee for about three years of my life. And, and I had, a, in one of my first jobs, a bit of a life-changing moment, which set me off on this journey of entrepreneurship. And it was in one of my first jobs as a, as a programmer, and um, I, you know, I was working for a finance company, and I hadn't been there too long. And I had, um, I had this manager who suffered from SMS. She's short man syndrome, and I apologise to any man who are short, but I do know some that are extremely well balanced. But he was, and in those days, um, people smoked in offices, and he smoked a pipe. It was quite amazing to. Yeah,
0: what a foreign concept now, right? Like even the thought to me of getting on planes and I used to, you know, you don't see it so much anymore, but you still see the, you know, no smoking signs or an ashtray used to be in the armrest, right? It was like, what a bizarre idea. as as if I
1: would, you know. But anyhow, so he had this little test, induction test, a little trick that he would play on people just to kind of find out how they reacted. And his little trick was to he had this uh, dummy coffee cup it was in the days when you had vending machines and people would take turns to go after the vending machine with the tray do you remember the trays with the six (laughs) holes and they'd come along with the cups in it and um what he would do was he'd lift the cup up that was yours with his finger so you knew which one to take but he had this trick cup which he would basically fake lifting it up and dropping it accidentally out the tray so you think you're about to get a cup of scalding hot coffee in your lap and he was basically a test to see what your reaction was. And my reaction was to play for you. call him, oh, you're a rotten bastard. <laughs> and I, I realized, I have a life of tactlessness, by the way, so that's me. Um, I realized in that moment that hadn't gone down very well because he suddenly went very serious and went, mm-hmm. And I, yeah, but you know, that was a life-changing moment because I suddenly realized that my... My whole future, my rate of advancement, my pay, my everything, was in the hands of this little short, pokes my pipe smoking book, and it didn't feel good at all. And I thought, wow, gee, I'm I'm going to have to rely on this. Anyway, I was I was there about uh, eleven months, yeah, less than a year, and an opportunity came along to go freelance. Um, just happenstance, a, a guy, I helped a guy move out of his flat in Germany, and we got chatting on the journey and told him what I was doing. And then next thing I know, he's offering me a contract to go freelance as a freelance programmer on these new computers called mini computers. I'm really aging myself here. This is <laughs> this was <laughs> prior to less microcomputers, we called it then. You no, know, I jumped at it. It was great. You know, I was way way, way under experienced, you know, but I could see that I could really start progressing at the rate that I wanted, you know, rather than being restricted, you know, by management. And so that was the beginning of my journey. I started off as a contractor. I had great fun going all around Europe, putting in a financial system. I actually ended up with the job that the guy who hired me, ended up with his job. So I ended up as European Financial Systems Manager at, at, I think, at the tender age of about twenty-three. You know, I was very young. Wow! Yeah.
0: And and quick question, Andy. Quick question: How did you find you know making that step from employment? You know, not the stable as stable as employment can be, I guess. But there's a stable paycheck and all the rest of it. Did you ever? Were you ever concerned making that step into freelancing, or, or was there just enough work that you never really had to worry about money and and you know like or you know at least the day to day kind of money?
1: No, no, money was a challenge, um, particularly cash flow. You know, I had I had a lot of work. You know, on that initial engagement, I had a you know good good contract, which lasted me quite a while. But it was always the cash flow issues of invoicing them and getting the money out of them and everything else and that you know it kind of tend to squeeze you and uh fortunately in the UK it's kind of a way of life having an overdraft you know and uh although one day the bank did contact me and said look we'd rather you bank with us rather than we bank with you (laughs) so I was uh, I think the banks liked a nice, healthy swing. They liked to see it swinging in and out of the red and the black. I think I was probably in the red a bit too much, but uh, you know, we, we got through <laughs> it. And uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's challenging, but it was also exciting at the same time. And my earnings were a lot better than they would have would have been, you know, working uh, in a in a secure job. Yeah, but. Uh, I guess it's just in my nature, you know. Some people want to have that security, you know. Others don't, and you know, it's just it's just great to have control control of your life. I mean, other people have always got some control of your life, you know. It, it's a that's a fact, yeah. you know. But
0: um, yeah, even if you're even if you're freelancing and you work for yourself, we're all beholden mm, to certain people at certain absolutely.
1: times, right? Absolutely, yeah. So. Yeah, so that was where I I got started. And through that journey I met some other guys who were we were working on a particular computer platform and we had this great idea, said, Oh, let's start a turnkey software house, which I don't know if that's an expression here that people are familiar with, but it's basically a custom software house where we would write software for people. Yeah, you know, on that particular platform. So that really was my first. I moved from being freelance to actually being a company director and an entrepreneur. You know, with two other enthusiastic guys, and we got going. And that was pretty successful. In fact, one of the interesting things was we we got. Um, you know, they say necessity is 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 the foundation of invention. I I don't think it's true. I think boredom is. Boredom is the catalyst for invention <laughs> because we got bored. You know, we got bored cutting the same code. We had to go and build all these applications and, you know, we had to say, right, there's a customer master file. You need a program that's going to put records in, that's going to delete them, that's going to update them, that's going to print them, inquire, everything else. And we were bored cutting the same code over and over again. So we thought let's find a way of speeding it up. So we we designed a, a method where you could design the screen that you wanted and actually generate the code from that, we didn't realise it, but we pretty well invented 4GL code. You know, we were ahead of our time.
0: So, so okay, like I'm a dummy with this stuff. So, what, what's 4GL code
1: without you know yeah, it's huge fourth technical fourth generation language? <laughs> where a lot of the functionality is is built into the code, so you're not actually coding. Every little thing. I mean, I, this is really dating. I go back to the days when, you know, if you hit a key on a keyboard, you had to decode the sequence to work out where you were on the screen and what the user had just told you to do next. You, it was that low level. It was extremely low level. So things yeah. have got much more higher level. But I came from the days where you basically coded everything, you know. So we've actually created this higher-level language. It had this built-in functionality that you didn't have to code yourself. Uh, but we didn't really realize what we'd done. But anyway, through that journey, I got um, an opportunity, got involved with um, actually STC, Standard Telephones and Cables, who needed a application to manage their field service. And the reason they needed it was that British Standards had introduced a new standard, BS5750, which was the forerunner of what we all know as ISO 9000, which is a quality standard, which forced companies mm. to start um, automating their, their business, and so we got our hands on some software from the US um, and got the job to d- uh, adapt it for local use, and um, mm-hmm. we which we did, and I could see an opportunity here, an emerging market being driven. By this new standard, it became a distressed purchase to have to need to have this to comply with the standard. So I thought I could see a business there, and that our turnkey software house we should maybe start selling this package. And my partners couldn't and I couldn't agree that we needed a salesman they said, I oh, know we can do it ourselves. And I said, you're crazy. You know, none of, we're just propeller heads. You know, we're not sales guys. We're going to need a salesman here. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't agree. So we mutually agreed. Um, I would basically start up another business. And that was business number two to basically focus on that market. Uh, and so, and that actually became one of my biggest successes. Uh so to-
0: so so with that new business w- did you completely go your own way or, or or was that business more you focusing on a certain element of the value chain and you continued to work together in a different we, we kind of relationship We still
1: collaborated and you know certainly you know we amicably parted and we shared you know some facilities you know com- computers offices and everything else and it was good but I was basically doing the new venture on my on my own and, so, so, were you competitors though? Were you no, no, doing no, the same sort of no, no, not at okay. all. But in fact, the thing was that in those days, computer hardware was so expensive, software wasn't seen to have any value, and so I actually managed to get the rights to the source code for this software uh, myself, which became wow. a bit of very valuable IP. Absolutely, you know, they could shift in on the back of software. They would they'd give the software away. Mm.
0: So, so that's interesting. So, this company has has you've gone out doing it your way. It's taken off. You're starting to get some success. G- give us a sense of what the company looked like. You know, like how long did was it trading? Mm. How big did it get in terms of people and turnover? And you know, give give us a sense of what the company looked like.
1: Yeah, look, I I, I basically I, I ran it for um, four years. On my own. And uh, we, we got to a point, I would say I, we gradually moved to bigger and bigger offices and I got to the point where I I probably had a staff of about, I think we were about 10 people at that time. Mm-hmm. So I, it then started getting, uh, because I'm at yeah, that time was just a techie. So I really didn't have an awful lot of business experience. And so I bought in another guy. In fact, it was the guy who gave me, who did the deal with me. To get the rights to the to the software, and I think um, you know he realised the potential there, and I managed to talk him into coming on board as a, as really as a commercial director and to help build up the business, um, and that was quite successful because in pretty pretty short order we we had a, a client who was uh, a listed company who was a hardware. Um, vendor, but but also provided service themselves who were using our package, so they were a customer, and we got to the point where they were interested in, became interested in buying us. But previous to that, I almost sold the company to Motorola. So we actually acquired Motorola as a customer, and then they sent me out to the US to demonstrate the software to their uh, team in Chicago. And then unexpectedly a guy turned up from the, the West Coast to say, Hi, I've I've come to take you over to California. We want to talk to you about buying your business. And it's like, Wow, okay. <laughs> that was just so left field. And we, we did a negotiation. How,
0: how how did that make
1: you feel? How oh did that yeah, make unbelievable. You feel? <laughs> I couldn't it was so surreal. Yeah. You know, one minute I'm there in Chicago, <laughs> you know, demonstrating the software. The next minute I'm over in San Jose and I'm Talking to the directors of Motorola about you know buying the company. Uh,
0: do, do you think so? And just a question on that because I think a lot of our listeners have, well, some certainly some of them have been tapped on the shoulder, you know, asked if they want to sell or told that they this entity wants to buy. We also, you know, have lots of people in our kind of network, our clients, people that have been tapped on the shoulder, and it's gone down in not necessarily gone down in flames, but it's it's turned out to be quite a sour experience. Mm. Because they they get tapped on the shoulder, they get very much caught up in some of the emotional stuff about it. It's, it's exciting, it's it's very flattering. It's, um, you know, um, wow, this has never happened before and it's, everything feels really lovely, there's a good relationship. And then they spend six to nine months doing all this DD crap and the deal falls out. <laughs> um, and leaving them feel very sour and disappointed and frustrated like what well, how did you find that experience and did you, and can you relate to any of that sort of emotion do
1: you know that's exactly what happened
0: <laughs> 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 That is exa- okay disclosure here i did no. not know that before i came <laughs> on this show
1: <laughs> that yeah pretty much nine months going through it you know talking to people providing you know helping them do the due diligence and uh Getting to the point where suddenly it all went quiet, you know, wasn't happening. And I think I was actually away on holidays, staying in a bed and breakfast. And um, I'd been trying to close the deal and close the deal. And suddenly I got a message. um, I mean, I think this was even pre-mobile phones, you know. And um, somehow anyway, I ended up in a call with America from the phone, the house phone of the bed and breakfast talking to the guy I've been negotiating with and got the news like, I'm sorry, we've had a change of strategy, a change of direction, and um, we don't see that that's uh, strategic to us any longer. S- sorry about that. Wow. Thanks.
0: And, and, and I think that's a good, good lesson in that because I think um, people who've gone, gone through that experience sometimes don't just feel sour by the experience, but sometimes they feel a little bit soured towards that party because they feel like they were kind of led mm. on a bit. And, and, look, let's be honest, sometimes people are led on for, for nefarious sort of reasons, but I think in a lot of cases when you're dealing with corporates, like, I mean, I've worked for corporates, they, rest, they seem to restructure every two years. So, you know, it, it, strategy changes, right? People, things change and it's not necessarily malicious, it's just the way large businesses often yeah. work.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think if you can't nail it quick, that, you know, if you can't nail it within three months, the danger is that the sands shift and things change, and suddenly, yeah, that's no longer important to us and and but do that's you think
0: yeah yeah, and uh, do you think in in hindsight um do you think it would have helped having some so, somebody help you on that process you know i mean i it sounds like you negotiated it all yourself and 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 not that not that that's a criticism to your negotiation skills it's uh by the sounds of things, that was the first time you were in this kind of new territory, right, so oh
1: yeah. Yeah, I wish. And, in fact, I think that's what drove me to bringing this other guy on board as a commercial director because of those issues, absolutely. Somebody who was experienced and commercially savvy and could, could negotiate that. And I think, you know, had the deal gone through anyway, I, I in hindsight, I know that I would have ended up selling it for way less than I should have done. You know, it, it felt like a impressive number at the time. Yeah. um but absolutely yeah but it but that actually became sorry simon yeah
0: oh no no so uh, i mean i was just going to ask a question on the valuation stuff i mean in terms of the number, it's uh, i was just curious did, did they actually make an offer and and if so kind of how did how did they come to that number did they talk about a methodology or an approach or hey we think it's worth x and here's why that kind of thing
1: yeah, look, I don't know what the rationale behind it was, but, I mean, at that time, and, and this, you know, just bear in mind we're talking about about the 80s here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sorry. They, no, I, yeah. <laughs> they were offering me
1: 150,000, which pounds, right? So, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't sound a lot, but I guess, you know, that that was um, translates these days, at that time, to about $300,000, Australian dollars. Felt like a lot of money, you know, when, when you... Bear in mind, I I suppose I'd I'd bought a house for about half that amount, you know. So, (laughs) you know, (sighs) it it felt like a lot of money then. So, but as to what their rationale was behind that, you know, and um, I guess the trailing conditions, the only trailing conditions was that I would continue to have an involvement, you know, for a certain number of years, which Mm. kind of felt good. But yeah, no, there was probably an awful lot of things that were could have been a better about the whole deal, you know. Yeah, often. sure. Yeah, but anyway, that was the catalyst, as are getting a, a you know savvy advisor on board, and then that's what led to eventually this sale to this listed organization, this Computer Group, which interestingly were a Motorola distributor, so there was that connection around there. So that's that's what brought them to us, and so we. Mm. We cut an initial deal where they basically acquired control of the organization. I still had some equity in the organization and got, you know, an initial an initial payment. And then there was, um, I think it was golden handcuffs for about three years and payments around bonuses, around performance, profits and so forth. And there was one little condition in there which came ended up coming back to haunt us was that if you should make a loss, we will acquire the rest of the equity for one (laughs) pound. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. We didn't imagine that would ever happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the... Yeah, well, my question was, Did after you had sold the company, I mean, the concern I find with a lot of people is that once they sell their company and they go into the earnout transitional phase that they lose control over a lot of the uh, elements in their business that allows them to actually drive the outcome and hit the target
1: absolutely and in fact what happened because of that precisely because of that the business uh, we we did just spoiler alert: We did end up making a loss, so um, <laughs> uh, and that provision did kick in. But I, you know, I'd had earnouts by then, anyways. But um, because I'd lost control uh, for, the, for all those reasons you describe, the business became too big. I had a vision; it was a software company. I knew, I guess, the productivity should be of and capability of a software company should be. And my gut feel was that we would, shouldn't, wouldn't, I couldn't ever imagine we'd have more than 30, three zero people. That's quite a lot of horsepower. You know, if you've got people of the right talent, but we got to the stage where we'd ended up with 58 people. You know, the commercial director that I'd hired actually became the, uh, the CEO because of his great business experience. I can understand that. That's what they wanted to do. And um, basically things have got a bit out of control. And we'd ended up with 58 people. And we had a lot of cost. And consequently, you know, we we got to the, we were doing the deals, we were getting the business, but the costs were running high. And we also had an enormous overdraft courtesy of the, the listed company's treasury account that had a overall treasury lending limit. So we somehow got our overdraft up to phenomenal levels you know what for us what was a lot then it was about a million pounds (laughs) we got it up unbelievably got up to a million before they started getting a little bit a little bit jumpy but unfortunately after some years we did we did did make a loss because of that and so you know those provisions kicked in and uh the rest of the equity went but you know i after the golden house i did continue to work with them but then they hired this very short general manager and it was like a recurring nightmare. I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm back into this again.
0: Deja vu. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's like, I'm here again, I'm employed and I've got a short manager. Uh, so I, I basically uh, set up another venture so I could see there was time to move on. And um, given that I was... Uh, very involved with the field service industry, I could see that the natural progression was to put the technology into the hands of the guys in the field. And there was this new wonderful technology evolving called uh, mobile data. And so I shifted into that, say, okay, here's another emerging market. But um, incidentally, that field service management business, we were we were really first to market in Europe. We were the first specialist provider in Europe and prob- and the third in the world. And so wow. there's an emerging pattern in my whole career, and that's being first to market, which is both a good thing and a very bad thing, as I've learnt. <laughs> so, mm. you mm. know, to set- successfully develop a market, you need a lot of funding, uh, and you also need to protect your IP. And unfortunately you don't have the money to protect it as well as you should do and so what eventually happens if it truly is an emerging market when it does emerge the big boys come along and just shove you out the way or you know take take your lollies and run away with them
0: <laughs> it, yeah and you know that's i think that's a that is a recurring kind of thing i i know when i was in banking there was a common expression whenever something new was happening in the industry it was almost a little bit of a joke between participants in the industry that the big companies, the big banks, were always in a race to come second. In other words, yeah. they never wanted to lead on anything. They wanted to see one of the other banks take the risk, you know, prove that it kind of worked, and then they'd all pile on, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess if you're going to be the first movie, you, as you said before, I guess you've got to have the capital to keep bankrolling innovation and, you know, keeping that step ahead, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I. I guess I there was something vital that I wasn't aware of at that time, I guess due to lack of experience. Um, but essentially, I found that the adoption rate of the mobile data technology in the UK and Europe was very, very slow, and it wasn't happening. In the meantime, while I was running this business, that business, and we actually became the first... Uh, the first certified application um, on on the, um, it was actually a network run by RAM mobile data. We were the first certified app on a packet switch network, which is now, we now know it as as 4G, 5G, you know, it was replaced by that. But despite that, you know, we weren't really getting any traction. And so I got involved in another business, another First to market with got a uh, distributorship uh, for the, one of the first networked fax products, which was greatly favoured by the banks because they and financial services because they had needed to the ability to spray out faxes very quickly to the market in the days. Remember those fax machines? Oh, yeah. indeed, <laughs> indeed.
0: I, I I often laugh. My uh, my wife used to work for Western Union, and I used to relentlessly tease a lot of her colleagues about Western Union. I mean, they they basically invented the facts, um, Yeah, you know, going all the way back. But they turned down the telephone because they they went, oh, that's what a silly idea. Who really wants
1: to talk to each other? <laughs> and that turns out they're right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking to each other any longer, are we? Golly. Anyway, uh, so um, I uh, had another business, Network Facts. We had a distribution for, interestingly, a company, in um, Iceland, so I used to go to Iceland for board meetings, and it, we had VC, Venture Capital, and I always say to people, you know, if I had my time again, I would not go that route, that, uh, the Venture Capital route. It is a route, actually. I should say route, shouldn't yeah. I? But I think <laughs> route is right. I'm right. <laughs>
0: So, so unpack that a bit for me, right? It's, uh, you know, obviously we're not, you know, we're not making disparaging comments to anybody. It's more just uh, like what was the experience that led you to the feeling like that?
1: Uh, it's just that the, the venture capitalist was so demanding and, and difficult to deal with. In fact, we weren't dealing directly with the venture capitalists, but more, you know, one of their one of their offsiders who basically sat on our board and um, controlled things. And he he was, I guess, um, yeah, we was very constricted. So we ended up spending an awful lot of time in conflict. It it was maybe partly because of my business partner I had in that business, whose leaning was more towards conflict and didn't like authority, but uh, kind of bred that. But yeah, we essentially sold that business off to a another distributor in the end and um you know it was was a good opportunity but obviously it's a little bit like i suppose the the instant cameras isn't it that you know the the way the camera's gone we would have done a kodak anyway i suppose but uh we carried on but that's what ended up with me coming to australia because um we sold the business my partner went back to australia then got in touch with me and said hey you know that technology you're passionate about the the mobile data they've got it in australia and australia are great adopters of new technology i have news for you they're not but, uh, <laughs> but they have that reputation yeah they're dumb adopters just like the rest of the world i have, I have to say and i researched the market i didn't just come over here on hearsay and i could see yes there were major companies adopting this new technology and i contacted them and i you know they showed interest you know we had this package you remember i mentioned we were the first certified package i said we've got a package runs on ms dos you know run on a handheld device um for field engineers are you interested and they went yeah yeah yeah, that sounds great you know i had about three or four or five major companies make a show of interest so i thought woohoo you know this is it there's there's an emerging market there, came over here for a week, loved the place, went back, said to the wife and family, right, (laughs) we're going to Australia. Much to everybody's shock, you know, but that was in 95. (laughs) Well, actually ended up coming here in 95. I think it was more like 94 when we looked at it. I I got over here. I got sponsored. I was really fortunate. I joined um, an existing uh, mobile data company. And, uh, you know, as the tech director, threw in my lot with with them the ip that i had with this package and then looked to get into the market and had a very early success with optus vision crikey i think i arrived in december and by february i'd done this major deal with optus vision to put up give all of their tech so they were rolling out this huge network which we all know today we were in there right at the beginning automating the techs and um you know, giving them handheld devices or vehicle-mounted devices that they could communicate back with the office. So I thought, that's fantastic. I then discovered something I didn't know about called the adopter chasm. Okay. (laughs) Which you probably know about, but I'll explain for the benefit of the listeners. So basically this is where you get the early adopters and pioneers come in with a new technology, get into a market, and it gives all of the characteristics of an emerging market, the thing is it's exactly what you said earlier about the banks who always want to be second there's a lot of companies who want to be second and the time the gestation period for being second turned out to be about five years and that's you know we did business we survived we have people like Coca-Cola major customers you know but it was it was a struggle so we're in that adopter chasm for about three to five years a long time so it was actually no better than the Europe in terms of its adoption rate. By the time it got adopted here, actually, Europe was way ahead. So I'd stayed in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows?
0: Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I think you've, there's a difference between, a consu- the, in general general terms, consumers' willingness to buy new gadgets and, you know, enjoy fun toys yeah. <laughs> and, and, and businesses the sort of business sentiment and willingness to invest in new things, right, or new areas. So two two very different things. They do.
1: And we certainly got a lot of business both in the UK and here with people piloting the new toys and playing with the new toys and everything else. Uh, But there was always these barriers to adoption. And some of those were things like unions, you know, so we had a lot of uh, unions blocking things because it was all Big Brother and... They didn't want the back office knowing exactly where the techs were at any given time and having, you know, complete control over them, even though there was business cases like, well, we had at the time, you know, we had a vending machine client and their drivers were getting bashed for their keys. So there was a safety aspect, but they were still blocking it. You know, this would help cover their safety. All they had to have was a button on a... You know, lanyard around the neck, press it if they were in trouble, it would relate back to the vehicle, it would relate back to the back office you know, they still blocked it so yeah, yeah there yeah. was a lot of um, and there was a whole standoff with coverage, battery life and all of those issues you know, people in terms of the handheld device, you know, there was always something wrong with the device you were offering too heavy, too light, battery life, not good enough, you know and they didn't know what they wanted, and then they do now. It's the smartphone. That's what they wanted all the time, you know, and so that whole thing, issues issue has been removed.
0: It, it's funny. I did, a very, I did a short stint with Hutchison Telecommunications back in the day, and, of course, they were trading at the time as Orange and then they became Three and then they merged with Voter and all the rest of it. But I still remember when they bought the 1800 megahertz Spectrum and they were talking back then, and back then we were on two G, you know, like sending texts and playing that snake yeah. game on our phone was like yeah. the cool thing to do, and uh, and they were talking about literally video, you know, well what we would call FaceTime if you've got an Apple these days, but v- you know, video conferencing, phone to phone anywhere in the world, and and honestly, I remember us all we we marvelled at that at the time. I we went, wow, this is Ooh. this is like Star Trek, you know, like how how cool. Of course, it was a long way. <laughs> it took a long time to get from there to actually delivering a product and service like that. So it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting journey watching how these things unfold.
1: Yeah. Well, I became something of, you know, a, a, um, a spokesperson in this mobile data industry, and I used to run panels at conferences, and it was a bit of an enigma, you know, why is the market not adopting And I ran a workshop one day and I said, okay, hands up people who've got mobile data capability in the field. And, you know, a few hands went up. I went, okay, so how many are thinking about it? A few more hands went up, you know. And then I kind of realized, I asked this key question, I said, well, how many of you are still running on spreadsheets for job allocation and workforce management? And a whole bunch of hands went up, spreadsheets and whiteboards. And I kind of realized... (laughs) Yeah the problem here is not the mobile data it's it's the lack of of uh, technology in the back office you know it's a bit like uh, you know trying to buy a barcode reader and uh, not actually having an inventory management system it, that it connects to it's like yeah i can read barcodes but <laughs> what can i do with that you know it's it was like that you've got the the sophistication of the mobile device probably had it's a bit like comparing the the mobile phone today to the computing power they used in the moon landing. it's that was that much difference, you know, of what somebody had in their hand versus what they had in the back office. They just didn't have the back office maturity to to deal with that. So that was actually what was in the way. It you know, yeah. wasn't the field, it was the back office.
0: Now, that's interesting. And and so, you, you know, you've painted this picture so far because, you know, clearly you've been... an very early days you've been involved in technology and and clearly that has had us, you know really been a recurring theme through your life uh, uh, you know as an entrepreneur multiple businesses let's fast forward where, where does that take us to how has that led to where you are now and what are you doing today
1: yeah interesting question yeah how did i yeah so the current business i have two businesses today De- demand flow intelligence which i started in 2001 and i'll give you the quick catalyst for that in a moment. And then the latest business started at the beginning of this year, which is marketing data fitness, which is making data fit for purpose. Demand flow intelligence is, is a market intelligence company and also a demand generation company. So as you say, not tech It is tech because most of our clients are tech providers, but what winding back uh, to 2001 came and we had the tech wreck, uh, And at that point, I was actually running a JV, uh, which was doing warehouse management software, doing supply chain execution software. We, we got ourselves into a position, and this is another big business lesson, where we had a big client, one of our first clients. We were putting a system in. I won't name them, but basically we got to a point where they owed us a million bucks. I owed us a million bucks, and we weren't getting the money out of them. And at the same time, along came the Tech Rack in 2001, which locally was created by post-Y2K, you know, year 2000, everybody put a heap of dough into, uh, year, you know, year 2000, making sure they didn't get taken out by the, the so-called Millennium Bug, which didn't exist. Um, <laughs> and then we also had GST. So they had to spend a mozza on putting in new business software to be able to handle GST. So come 2001, no money. And and there was an overall global tech wreck. So that combined with the fact that we couldn't get this million bucks out of this esteemed client, <laughs> took us out of the game and we ended up in administration. Um, the administrator yeah, well. took, took that client to court. We got litigation funding because they could see that basically it just wasn't fair. <laughs> And they had no reason to do that. What had actually happened is we'd been white anted by their um, IT manager who'd written their original system, that in the background he was, look, studying what we were putting in, ripping it off and putting it into his system. We got to a point where he said, oh, we don't need that. Look, we've got all this capability. So I discovered the laws of copyright are pretty useless, you know, because all he had to do was to... Change a bit of the code. If Briding hadn't literally copied the code, he just aped the functionality. Not much you could do about that. So, anyway, at the end of the day, yeah. the only people who won were the lawyers. So, the yes. lawyers won. Yeah, that was a shame, but a huge lesson there. But as part of that journey of running this uh, supply chain execution software company, I wanted to know how big my market was. So I wanted to know how many warehouses, distribution centers there were of a given size in Australia. Pretty, you know, like every businessman should know. And I discovered something. I don't know if it's, um, you know, indigenous to the Australian market or a global thing, because in the UK we used to be pretty hot on knowing your market size and everything else. Um, I discovered that that information was actually very hard to get. Um, It just didn't readily exist. And, Providers like Gartner very kindly offered to solve that problem for 30,000 bucks. Now, I love Gartner. And I'm a huge <laughs> fan. I'm, I'm a raving fan of theirs. But we didn't have that sort of money in the budget to find out how big our market was. So I realized in that moment that they were there for the globals, 30K to a global to make sure that it didn't come into a market that didn't exhaust, exist or wasn't ready for them, or they weren't ready for it, was chump change. They would burn more than 30k an hour if they made that mistake. So very, you know, worthwhile them doing. But I realized that there was very little affordable market intelligence for local players, and there was a gap there. And so I founded the company with the grandiose vision of being a little tiny mini Gartner, and... Um, helping people with market entry, which is what we did. And through that journey, as we brought people into the market, they reached out to us to say, great, on your advice, we've come into the market, we've got an office, we've got a salesman, we desperately need a pipeline. Can you help us build a pipeline? And so we got into to that business and that became a major part of the business. And in fact we've come really more full circle that we're now doing more market entry work. And we now talk about ourselves as market geologists. So we're people who really know the market well. We specialize in high value sales. They're hard to find. So we use our market geology skills to help our clients identify where the right place to dig is. You know, if you're looking for gold, you don't grab a spade and just start digging up your back garden or or the high street. You know, (laughs) it ain't going to be there. It's unlikely that it is. So... Because of that lack of knowledge, there's just an awful lot of wasted bucks go into that because you're basically looking in the wrong place.
0: Yeah, no, well, I'm curious because you, you, you mentioned the difference between the large corporate. So, so is this accessible to, I mean, uh, how small are your, you know, you, I mentioned you've got clients in the, on the spectrum, but is this accessible for small companies?
1: Well, the service that we provide. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, you know, we've had clients who are like, for one person. You know, the, the, I guess the, uh, the common factor for us is, is that we've got a high value sale and by high value, not, not for us, or we'd like it to be for us, but what they're selling, they're selling it for 50000 to a couple of million. So we operate in that mid-market where people have got the challenge of scale. They can usually manage the enterprise market themselves. But when you get into the mid-market, you've got that you know, tyranny of scale. And that's where we operate, but the, so, so, you know, our client might...
0: Sorry. So I, I just wanted to say, so in a nutshell, like if if a company out there has a high ticket price product or service that they sell, this is the service that enables them to work out who's who in the zoo, who's who in their market, who's out there and who they can go and target and actually start, you know, developing a relationship with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. And and we're the guys that help kick off that relationship. So we're basically providing an upper funnel service where we're looking to keep that upper funnel filled up for them, so their sales guys can spend their time on the you know the lower funnel, the opportunity funnel, and uh, chasing business. Yeah. You know, because it to keep the upper funnel filled needs consistent effort, but as you say, you need to be looking in the right place. You, know, you need to be in the right jungle, you know. As I always say, if you're looking for orangutans, you better make sure you're in the right jungle, you know. <laughs> because yeah, there's a lot of jungles with just chimps in them, and you know, it's a waste of time. Yeah. So, yeah, that's very much what we're doing. But our clients can be huge. You know, they can be global, global players, or even partners. They're usually, the smaller ones are partners of, global, of bigger players. But we, you know, we work with startups you know it i guess the the lifetime value of the sale is the key thing uh, yeah. because the way we work we do forensic type demand generation work the acquisition cost of opportunities is quite high because of that but if you've got a high sale value then you can actually justify um investing in in a high acquisition cost because yeah, you know, yeah. the upside is pretty big potentially big you know yeah yeah, yeah it makes perfect sense mm. so just quickly, you know, through that journey of having then worked a lot with people's data and helping with uh, putting in marketing automation systems, we discovered that a recurring theme is that everybody's data, particularly their contact data, is in pretty bad shape. And so we actually developed some tools to fix that up and uh, turn that in a, into an automated uh, data cleaning robot that we call Dave. DAVE, which is our data accuracy verification engine. And we basically move that into a separate business at the beginning of the um, year, and that's our data fitness business. And what's that that is designed to do for us, and this is another huge business lesson that I learned, was to actually generate a recurring revenue stream. You know, you can be the best services business in the world, but you know, if you're totally relying on services, there's no IP. There's no recurring revenue, and so you've got very little underlying value, and you haven't got a recurring revenue stream to depend on. So, say so I, I always look. One of my uh, friends of mine is a very, very successful insurance broker, and um, of course, their whole life was was annuity income, in recurring revenue, which which renewed for very little effort. And I always looked at him and went, "Why didn't I do that?" You know, it's like it's so obvious now. You know. He's done very well, but I think the important thing that I learned, though, it's not so much what you earn. It doesn't matter what you're doing or what you earn. It's actually what you do with what you earn that makes the difference at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's sure. you know, you can earn a lot of money. I've seen you know people who are stockbrokers earn huge money, but they spent it just as quickly as they earned it. And so, despite you know earning huge amounts, at the end of the day, I ended up with nothing. Because yeah, yeah. Just all blown, it all. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and I and I love this. Um, I love this idea of understanding. You know, the the your data fitness. You know, this concept of the quality of your data. Yeah, and and I and and the part that sort of really perks my interest is is, you know, obviously uh, our firm Exit Advisory Group does. You know, M&A. It's a boutique M&A firm. It does transactions. And, and, of course, you know, we're out there generally selling companies and businesses on behalf of our clients and establishing in a market, well, what is this business worth? And, and of course, as time goes on, data is becoming more and more important. And so h- how does... How does one quantify or qualify the, the the value of that data? Right, because I I certainly see in in companies that we've looked at, we see some uh, tech DD going on. You know, like if we're selling a company with a platform, there'll be tech due diligence in the background to understand the the coding and do, does this all kind of stack up? But I certainly haven't had any buyers ask for due diligence or verification on the actual quality of their data. And I say that with a big yet on the end of that, because I don't think that most people realize that this service existed yet, you know, but but, but one thing I can say is, and, and over the years I've seen, is in transactions where they said, oh yeah, we bought this database and there was like, 25,000 contacts on there, but what a load of crap. It was, you know, by the time we sort of threw all the rubbish, there was maybe, a, you know, a third of that or something like that. So what are your thoughts around that?
1: Oh, you're so right, Simon. I, I You know, I think data is the new oil. You know, it's, you know, there's, I would say to people, j- just think of this, you know, um, systems are temporary, data or data, we do both data and data. So <laughs> Reassure really everybody. Tomato, tomato. Do both types. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, is permanent. So systems are temporary, data is permanent, and what we're seeing are happening a lot is people getting a new shiny system, just moving all their old crummy data into this new system. You know, and it's um, it's happening over and over again. But we're also seeing with business acquisitions you're right, people are not doing due diligence on the data. And I know, you know, clients, for instance, and I'm not going to name them, that have sold off magazine heads and and part of the deal was the, the circulation list and they breathed a huge sigh of relief because the, the buyer never checked it and they knew the deficiencies in that list. So it really is buyer beware. You know, and, I, and I've heard so many stories where people have, sold their company. And really, the buyer was just buying it to get that list and get that client list and that data, but didn't do the due diligence on it. So I think, you know, there's important need for a due diligence service on both sides of the fence, one as a buyer to check that the data you're buying is everything that it's purported to be. I mean, a quick salutary lesson, a client gave us an account list of 4,200 accounts and said, could you clean that up we did that and handed back 2,800. The attrition was huge. Accounts. Yeah. Meaning either wow. they were merged out of business or they were duplicates, the same account. And of course, their reaction was oh, oh shit, <laughs> excuse my language. We've got one account <laughs> manager too many. And also, our market is not as big as we thought in this particular wow. line of business. So it's pretty crucial. So. <sighs> You know, when you say, when you share that story, and thank you for
0: sharing that story, that, I, I find that really interesting because it's not just speaking to potentially the value of the company and their, I'll, I'll say, data, mm. <laughs> um, but but it actually now is starting to have an impact operationally and and on their expenses and how they're running running their business. And it, and it brings to mind that analogy, and I think this has been credited to Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure it's been credited to lots and lots of people, but, you know, if you've got six hours to cut down a tree, spend at least four hours sharpening your axe, right? right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and I think that this is goes to that point of if you're going to hire salespeople and you're going to hire marketing people and you're going to have all of these big, heavy expenses running around in a market trying to sell and do stuff, man, oh, man, you really want to make sure they're dealing with accurate information.
1: Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And it wastes so much time, you know, it causes so much waste. And we see huge volumes of duplicates, you know, it it... it you can end up with multiple people working on what turns out to be the same account. So you get all these conflicts within organizations and sales, uh, people falling over each other. A huge amount of issues that it creates, for sure. But I think also as a seller, it's worth having your data valued because I think, you know, multiples are so low these days, you know, they're generally, and you know, this field much, much better than me, but... Yeah, generally looking at multiples between two and four. And so if you can actually prove that your data, the value of your data and the usefulness in the negotiation, if you were to add, say, half a point, that's quite significant in a scale of two to four, adding an extra half a point, that could make a huge difference. So I think it's worth it for both the seller and buyer to be really, really looking at that data.
0: Yeah, look, I agree, and, um, and what I would say uh, for anybody thinking about selling, uh, you know, the, the, the point of turmoil or conflict and decision in their minds probably is, uh, well, number one, you know, I, I mean, do, do they think they have a problem with their data? If they've got 10,000 records, geez, you know, is it going to be better that I just go to market with 10,000 records? You know, will it reduce the value if I'm going in with less? And, and, and to that, I would be saying to people, uh, absolutely not. I think if you front it up to a buyer mm. and you said to a buyer, we, our, um, we've got a database, database, database <laughs> of, uh, of 5,000 records. And by the way, it actually used to be 8,000, but we did a full audit of our data in the last 12 months and we found duplicates, this, that, and the other, and we have completely cleaned that up. And by the way, and I don't know if you provide any sort of certification thing here, Andy, but, you know, by the way, here is the, uh, the record from our provider who has certified yeah. his work. You know, uh, uh, to me, even though you've got less numbers of contacts or whatever it might be in your database, the, what an element of credibility, what an element of confidence you will give that buyer and, and also it says, we put our hand up and said, look, we're not hiding away from, you know, trying to hide the fact that things might not be perfect. We accept that things aren't perfect, but we are willing to take that on
1: and fix yes, it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we, and that's, we provide a, you know, data fitness check, give it a bit of a makeover, you know, for a, for a data set of less than 5,000, we've actually got a very attractive package for that. Can I do a little bit of advertising here Simon is absolutely it? So, yeah, we, please yeah uh, absolutely. you've got a small database so you just want to try it out we've got a really great offer of 999 including GST to less than 5,000 so if you've got a small data set we can run that through if you just want to got a bigger data set but you want to try out the service yeah that's what we offer so we try to make it affordable for pretty much anybody you know we do we do with data sets yeah up to the millions you know we can couple a million yeah. records. and
0: and I'm 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 joining I'm joining the dots here Andy but one would presume if I'm running a, a well small medium whatever size business doesn't really matter but if I have you check my data sets and you've you, you know let's just say we come out the back end of that with uh, 4000 contacts that all have I mean no doubt being in our database of database that that have certain characteristics I'm imagining once that's cleaned up, you can then say, well, would you like me to find you more people that look like them?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, um, I mean, we can do that on two levels because once we've got the data cleaned up and we've segmented it to say, okay, here are the, your target accounts and you're after certain personas, here's a gap analysis of the personas you haven't got within those accounts. Would you like us to go and fill that gap for you, get those missing personas for known accounts? And often people go, yes, please, that would be great. But then, of course, there's the whole issue of, um, and this is where our capability of market sizing comes in, of saying, okay, people want to know, I want to get into white space, probably because they've worn out the old audience because they've gone mad with their marketing yeah, you know, we've got a big, big problem of, of chronic audience fatigue here because people are using all these, I guess they're doing marketing on steroids now and bashing them to death. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they want white space. So we can actually go, okay, what is your ideal client profile? Who's not on your list? Let's go and find out who's in profile on your list and let's get the personas for you. So absolutely, yeah, we can do that as well. And so I, my contention is that a reasonable goal, in this market here, you know, talking about ANZ, it's a finite market. It's not that big. And it's quite reasonable to have a goal to have 80, percent of your market identified and, and, and under your control. And yet, very, very, very few businesses have. We do balanced scorecard checking. The best scores we've ever seen are 60%, and most of them trend more towards 30%. And that's kind of good news, bad news. Bad news, you've only got 30% of your market identified. Good news is you've got 70% potential left, white space. You know, let's Mm. go and help fill that. Interesting.
0: Andy, I've really enjoy chatting to you. It's you, you know, I'm I'm so grateful that you've shared your story with us. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot in a second and, <laughs> and ask if you've got a, uh, if, if there's through all of your experiences, you know, you've had wins, you've built business up, you sold them, you've built business up and lost them. You've had all this sort of in and outs and, and, you know probably narrowing down that experience into one tip that you might share with entrepreneurs is probably a hard thing to do but but i will ask you but in what while we're um before i get to that how do how do people get in touch is it are you are you happy for people to reach out and contact yeah. you yeah
1: yeah very happy best way to get me is on linkedin luckily i've got a unique surname so it's K-K-K-Y-E-T, which is spelled k y i e t so if you look for Andy Kiet on LinkedIn, you will find me straight away, and that's I. Uh, you know, I'm pretty well wired to LinkedIn, so yeah. Please contact me on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome. So I'm going to repeat that. So it's Andy K Y I E T. Um, I know I've typed that in and made the spelling mistake myself in <laughs> the past. So uh, so hopefully that's. Um, everyone's captured that but um so reach out on linkedin and by the way if you're listening to this please if you reach out on linkedin be courteous put a message in there let andy know that perhaps you heard him on the podcast or whatever just so that don't don't do a random connection without putting a message it's just kind of a bit weird yeah yeah. so yeah uh, (laughs) absolutely yeah and is there a website, Andy? What's the best websites um, or websites that people can kind of do a bit of homework on?
1: Yeah, so so the the data fitness site. If you just go to uh, www.datafitness.com.au, so it's data fitness or one word, that'll get you to the uh, site, and you'll get to meet Dave, our uh, data cleaning Excellent. robot. And then the other business, the demand gen business, um, demand flow intelligence or demand flow, is our domain. So www dot demand flow one word dot com dot au Fabulous, and look, we, we'll put
0: those websites and a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. So people, if they're you know looking on their phone or the desktop, they can hopefully just click through and have a look. So, um, so that's fabulous. Andy, Andy, thank you. And and to to finish up, is there is there one tip
1: <laughs> that you would uh, share with your fellow entrepreneurs? I would, I would, yeah. And that is, uh, in in the words of Winston Churchill, never give up, but. Be prepared to recognise that your idea might have been a lemon in the first place. <laughs> Don't go chasing fools gold, you know. Could be prepared to admit you're wrong I mean, you can get overly passionately involved with your idea, but just might not have been a commercially viable idea in the first place. So Yeah, don't believe your own bullshit. uh, I think
0: I'm going to paraphrase (laughs) here, but uh, (laughs) Andy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. I'm sure there's lots of people who will be getting a big benefit out of all of this. And uh, we're just so grateful for your time. So thank
1: you. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy Grow Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy Grow Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.